Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk <laughs> Recorded live. All right. Good evening, everybody. It is Wednesday, March 23rd, 2016, and we are here again with Bob Schaefer. And Bob is going to talk to us about, uh, was it, uh, jurisdictional proceedings in court? Is that it, Bob? Well, it's it's one of the many proceedings in court. It's going to be, we're going to talk about a jurisdictional challenge. Ah, okay. Well, take it away. Okay, um. Thank you, uh, people, for being here with us tonight. Um, what we're going to talk about now is how to challenge the jurisdiction of the court. Most courts today in America, state and federal, have absolutely no jurisdiction as courts. Their constitutions provide us all with a court of record, if you look at that. A court of record is a court that proceeds at the common law. Today's quasi-courts proceed under Roman civil admiralty administrative law. And there's only one way to get into that law, and that's through a contract. Uh, And usually that's an application contract for some job or office or some privilege granted by the government, uh, such as a license, franchise, pass, or permit of some type. So they have your contract, they've got your signature on a contract that places you under the administrative laws of this quasi-government, this federal corporate government that that came about after the the Act of 1871 that created Washington, D.C. as the United States Incorporated. And it is that corporation that is represented uh, at the United Nations. If you look at our representative there, it says United States. It doesn't say United States of America. So this federal corporate uh, 1871 entity is representing uh, at the United Nations. And then, you see, after the after that happened... They they had already started coming up with uh, uh, the reforms after the Civil War. We're, we're going back to 1861 now, when when all the representatives from seven southern states got up and walked out of Congress. Uh, they didn't teach us this in high school. I learned this just about six years ago that that killed the government because there was no quorum to reconvene, which means there was no a judicial branch. Well, without a judicial branch, Abraham Lincoln did not have a three-branch government. So uh, he declared war on the South himself as the commander-in-chief. And we've not had a constitutionally valid government ever since that happened. So it's, government always runs real slow. It takes them forever to get 
something figured out. So it took them 10 years from 1861 to 1871 to create a federal corporate quasi-government. And... Uh, that's what we've had ever since. Uh, that that crazy government made all the states uh, pass a new constitution. So every state has at least two constitutions. One is the original constitutionally valid uh, constitution. The other one is a federal corporate overlapping jurisdiction constitution. And um, that government then created uh, those, those overlapping states, they created brand new counties. And the original counties were, had the name of the area first, and then the title county, like San Bernardino County, Riverside County, Los Angeles County, Orange County. Then, after the Act of 1871, they came up with the county of San Bernardino, the county of Los Angeles, the county of Riverside. And so there's overlapping counties. Now, that didn't kill the original county. For instance, in my county, we have this San Bernardino County Sheriff, and that's been an office since 1853. But in, in 1912, I finally found it. I got the charter for the county of San Bernardino. So I've got proof now that there are two different entities, and it's the county of San Bernardino that has a sheriff department. So the San Bernardino County Sheriff is the sheriff of the county of San Bernardino Sheriff Department. So they're overlapping, and they don't even know it. I talk to them all the time. They didn't have a clue. They don't even know this, what I'm teaching you. So we don't really have any courts today, uh, constitutionally valid courts, that preceded the common law. Now, I've, I've been at seminars. In fact, even the guy that produced my seminars for a while, he was telling everybody, you have a right to a trial by jury. Uh, Seventh Amendment gives you a right to a trial by jury. And I couldn't get him to stop saying that because you you don't. You don't have a right to a trial by jury in this system, the system that's in place right now. If you read the Seventh Amendment, it starts out in suits at common law where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of a trial by jury. That's not a jury trial, by the way. A jury trial is under administrative law, which is what they have today. They do not want to give you a trial by jury. They will give you a jury trial. And most people are so ignorant. They're not stupid, but ignorant means lack of knowledge. They don't get the difference. The right of a trial by jury shall be preserved, and no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise re-examined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of the common law. So there's the word common law is there twice, the words common law. And so unless you're in a, in a court of record that proceeds at the common law, you don't have this right. Now, this, by the way, is a, is a right not granted by the Constitution, but recognized by the Constitution. You see, all rights were endowed to us by our Creator. Now, that's in the Declaration of Independence. If you're an atheist, I guess you don't have a Creator, so you don't have any unalienable rights endowed by your Creator. So uh, you're stuck with administrative law, which is, a, is, is not good for you. Now... 
The last time I had a serious court trial for myself, I demanded a trial by jury, and they would not give it to me because they know that I would teach 12 people to be like me, and they don't want that. I took two hand trucks full of boxes into the courtroom, two, you know, a lot of stuff. I said, I need three weeks to train my trial by jury of my peers pursuant to the Constitution. They didn't give it to me. Well, you see, right there in the Seventh Amendment, it says no no fact tried by the jury can be looked at ever again. In other words, you can get on with your life. You get it over with. You don't have to go up on appeal. But they want you to go up on appeal because most people can't afford to go up on appeal. So you're stuck with a lower decision. I tell people, when you those people that could afford to go to the United States Supreme Court and get a four to five decision in their favor have lost many times. They lost uh, many years ago. We had police courts and justice courts and city courts, and you could appeal to the municipal court, then you could appeal to the superior court, then you could appeal to the state uh, court of appeals, then you could appeal to the Supreme Court, and then you could get to the United States Supreme Court. How many people can afford that? And they know this. And so you get to the United States Supreme Court and you have four Supreme Court justices rule against you just like you had all the other people rule against you. But five of them say, no, 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 no. This guy was right all the way back to the beginning. There are lots of four to five decisions. And that's why it's really important that uh, they get done what they're supposed to be doing right now uh, with replacing uh, the last Supreme Court justice that died. Anyway, so we have what we call a jurisdictional challenge. And I'm going to read you, um, I've mentioned this in the past, uh, a good uh, author edits and edits and edits and edits. Um, and so I'm going to read you something that I wrote sometime and re-edits it many times, but it's right on point here. And uh, see, normally I just uh, speak uh, with my eyes closed and from my mind, and, and I, you know, I can take up an hour or two doing that. But this is so important. I'm gonna I'm gonna read you something that is not just off the cuff. It's just uh, it's part of documents that I have created in the past. Well, here we go. Well-settled American law and jurisprudence clearly indicates that a subject matter jurisdictional challenge is not an unlawful, illegal, or rebellious procedure or action. It was designed by well-settled American law and jurisprudence to absolutely and unconditionally stop any unlawful or unconstitutional action before or during irreparable injuries are completed and to also provide a remedy for unlawful or unconstitutional actions after injury. And we have to see memorandum of law below. As the reader knows or reasonably should know, now this is going to the enemy or the opposition. As the reader knows or reasonably should know, subject matter jurisdiction cannot be waived at any time by any party, even by a former or current forced, voluntary, or intentional general appearance, application, petition, or request by the accused to his or her own ignorance, mistake, inadvertence, or error, leaving the parties who cause an injury without subject matter jurisdiction liable to the injured party and without any absolute judicial immunity, quasi-judicial immunity, 
good faith immunity, qualified immunity, or police officer's immunity in an action for damages. Now, subject matter jurisdiction is one of four jurisdictions. There is what they call in rem jurisdiction. That's jurisdiction, or, or I should say power and authority over the thing. Could be a car, could be a house, it could be anything, a pile of money. Then there is in personam jurisdiction, which is power and authority over persons. See, it's right there. In personam is close to the word person. You have to be under contract with the government or the quasi governments to be a person. A, a corporation or an association that functions as a matter of a governmentally created privilege is a person. It's not a living person, it's just, but it's still a person that can sue and be sued. And all these administrative laws, and I have them, I bought a brand new set uh, in 1994 of all the California codes uh, annotated, and they all deal with persons. Now, the word person is plural, just like the word people is plural. It, these laws all deal with persons. That means people under contract. doesn't apply to you or me unless you have a job with the government and, and throw yourself under the administrative laws and are therefore a person. Because the laws start out, all persons shall. Shall is mandatory. They're talking about the people under contract. They're not talking about the sovereign people. They're talking about the people who are under those laws. Uh, see, I'm teaching you that there's not, not everybody is under all laws. There is no constitutionally valid law that says all people are under all laws. And yet they'll re ridicule you if you say, well, I'm not under that law. Oh, so you think you're above the law. You got it. That's exactly where I am. I'm one of those sovereign people that are way up there. You work for me. They don't want to ever hear that. You're under contract with me through your oath of office. I don't have that oath of office. You placed yourself under that oath of office when you signed your contract for, for the office that you're in. So anyway, so there's in personam jurisdiction that deals with those people, not the sovereign people. Then there is venue jurisdiction. That means this judge or quasi-judge or administrative law judge, or let's call them ALJ, administrative law judge, they have a certain venue. That could be the county, or it could be just the city if it was an old police court, or it could be several counties. The United States District Court has, has districts, which includes many counties. So that judge has jurisdiction or quasi-jurisdiction in, in his venue, but no place else on the planet. And if he does anything outside of that venue, you've got a jurisdictional challenge question. Then there's subject matter jurisdiction. Now, all the case law says if they don't have this fourth one that I'm telling you about, subject matter jurisdiction, they don't have any of the others. None. And that means, get a little bit, there's five adjectives here. Here, there's, that means they're in the clear, total, complete absence of all jurisdiction and therefore liable for any injuries they cause you. And if you knew the law, you'd see that most of the time, all the people are sitting, I shouldn't say all, but most of the people are sitting in jails and prisons today shouldn't be there because they weren't put there properly, even though they were evil people, some of them. 
There's a lot of people that are not evil but are in there because they need beds to be filled because there's a profit to be made for every bed filled and not because you're guilty or innocent. Uh, I think it was the University of California just came out with a study that points out the millions upon millions upon millions of dollars paid out by governments for those people who served time, lost money out of their life, or excuse me, time out of their life, and they got big judgments from the government for being falsely accused. But hey, the prosecutor got his man, didn't he? Justice was served, and it wasn't served. And so this this report is really puts down the judiciary and the prosecutors for miscellaneous or excuse me malicious prosecution where where these people were totally innocent. I believe I heard that the city of Chicago or the state of Illinois had to let 42 people out of death row because DNA evidence proved they were innocent, but yet. They were put away according to the to the rules of court, and and these prosecutors that were uh, malicious here. They got their man. They, they 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 you know that's a feather in their cap because they got all these these people put away. Okay, now we're going to go we'll keep going here. Um, where was that? Okay, without subject matter jurisdiction, all co-conspiracy conspiracy, let me replay that, without subject matter jurisdiction, all co-conspiring governmental and quasi-governmental officers, agents, and employees are in the clear, total, and complete absence of all jurisdiction. And that's clearly shown below. Uh, this, I'm taking the name of the guy out. has made several timely subject matter jurisdictional challenges in the past with absolutely no timely response as mandated by well-settled American law and jurisprudence, generously presented herewith and here and after. Now, you see, when when you make a jurisdictional challenge, as we're going to see here in a minute, they have a responsibility to prove jurisdiction. In fact, they're supposed to. In the U.S. District Court, you start out when you file a complaint or an action of law, the first paragraph talks about their jurisdiction. How did you, how do you get jurisdiction over these parties? You have a jurisdictional statement, and then you have the parties. In the state court, they don't do that. So the, everybody is assuming that well, the guy with the gun and the badge and the black robe—they're all—they're all highly trained, and they must have all this jurisdiction. And I'm really sunk here. And you're not if you know the law. So. Um, it's a subject matter jurisdiction you want to challenge. Now, if you have, for instance, uh, land and code enforcement is coming after you, I'm helping a guy right now that they came and arrested him and they took his horses and they put his horses down because some neighbor complained and the guy has a land patent. I just got a certified copy of it that doesn't re- reserve any rights whatsoever to the state or its legislative executive or judicial departments or to any city or county, which means they're all on the outside looking in and they, they've trespassed on this man's uh, land patent. And uh, you see, even though he didn't claim the, benef- the forever benefits of his land patent, he still has them and they're still bound by them. And so we're going to claim those within the next week and then we're going to show that 
the court that it had no jurisdiction to come out there and uh, take his, his animals. Now, they took their animals and did what they did before they even got a, a, um, a warrant. Now, that's completely backwards. Remember, we talked about procedure. It's very important. And they had absolutely no authority to go and do all this stuff. So they're all in deep trouble. The, uh, I'm going to read you the Fourth Amendment because this is critical. Uh, what we're doing here, we're showing the intent of the original lawmaker. The intent of the original lawmaker is binding on all courts and governments to this day. So to find out the intent of the original lawmaker, we have to see what the words meant. And there's case law on this that talks about we have to know what they meant. Okay, now the Fourth Amendment says the right of the people. Now, we're talking about rights again, not privilege. So these are unalienable rights and down to us by our creator if you're not an atheist. So we're talking about uh, people that aren't, aren't atheists when we're talking about the right of the people to be secure in their persons, their houses, papers, and effects. Effects would be those horses. Against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated and no warrant shall issue. Just got this some judge is going to be in deep trouble now with no jurisdiction. He issued a warrant after they already took the horses. And no warrant shall issue but upon probable cause. Now, we've got to analyze the word probable cause. This is not the same as reasonable cause uh, or cause. Uh, there's another cause in there that they use. I can't remember right now. But uh, probable cause in 1789, when this was passed by the legislature, not excuse me, was not passed by the legislature. This was passed by the founding fathers when they were before the legislature ever met. So in 1789, probable cause was for a common law felony. There's that word common law again. That's all they had. America was built on British common law and developed its own American common law. Common law is nothing more than custom, usage, practice, and procedure. It's unwritten, and it's based on reason, logic, and common sense. Those original guys were really in tune with what was right, and it's all got twisted and turned now so that they are in control and make money off the poor people that don't understand anything because they've been dumbed down. They don't teach this stuff in school. So anyway, the term probable cause was for what they call them a mens re or a malum and say common law felony. It was already bad before anybody said there ought to be a law against it, like murder, rape, arson, treason, kidnapping. Those are all already bad. So unless you're accused of murder, rape, arson, kidnapping, and treason, leave me alone because that's a malum and say uh, common law, uh, probable cause. All this other stuff that's in the uh, in the the uh, statutes, codes, titles, manuals, rules, and regulations are not, don't rise to the level of probable cause. Those are those are much lesser, and uh, they're they're administrative laws. You have to have a contract to put you under those laws. So no warrant shall issue, but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation. They don't get an oath or affirmation from that neighbor that says those horses are bothering me. There's no oath or affirmation. 
and which was particularly describing the place to be searched and the person or things to be seized. See why you people should should grab our, our constitution and read it and learn the words, because that's that's your that's your answer for for all this pretend crimes that they're coming after people for. For instance, I've been stopped illegally. I mean, it was they stopped everybody. The cones were up, and they you know they they stopped everybody and said, "Show your driver's license, registration, and proof of insurance." Well, I don't have a driver's license because because I don't drive anywhere. I sure travel a lot in control of my automobile, but it's not a motor vehicle pursuant to Title 18, Section 31, which says a motor vehicle is a contrivance, conveyance, or machine used in trade, commerce, business, or industry for a fair fee or rate. In other words, a cab driver, a truck driver, those guys are all drivers, and they are under the vehicle code, and their their uh, contrivance is also known as a motor vehicle, because I just described it. So when they cited me for violating uh, vehicle code 12,500A, it, they didn't cite the words. That's against the law. That's against the essential element rule. See how important procedure is. All they cited me for was just the title of the law and the, and the number of the law. So in other words, that notice to appear or promise to appear or traffic citation is not a jurisdictional granting document that was served on me by a third disinterested party. It was given to me by the police officer, who's nothing more than a witness. And that, that citation at the curb is just a witness statement. And when it's handed to a judge, even if he's a real judge with the right oath of office, and they aren't, but even if it was, that doesn't give that, that judge any jurisdiction whatsoever to even talk to me. So anyway, if you read 12,500A, in the first sentence, there's four, four arguments in my favor. It says, all persons, that's not me, don't call me a person, who drive, I don't drive anything. I don't operate anything. Those are commercial terms. A motor vehicle, my, hey, my automobile is not a motor vehicle. It's not used in trade, commerce, business, or industry for a fair fee or rate. Shall be licensed. Well, I think all those people should be licensed. I want them licensed. They're using my right of way as their place of business. You see how, how our ignorance has caused us to spend lots of money. We throw a lot of money at them. They tell us to pay over there, and it's not. 12 to 14 dollars like it was 50 years ago it's in the hundreds and thousands of dollars they bring in a lot of money with our ignorance i don't preach but uh, jose four uh, four six says my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge well i guess he considers everybody on the planet his people because everybody on the planet is destroyed for lack of knowledge now i'm going to go on reading here I made this into a memorandum of law that uh, is in the form of an affidavit, which they have to respond to. And if they don't respond to it, it's set in concrete. In other words, you guys have all accepted what I just said here. Because here's a case that says, silence can only be equated with fraud. See, a lot of times people, I'll do a document for people and say, well, that didn't work. That didn't work. They didn't even respond, you know? 
Yes, it did. It worked very well. In fact, we didn't want them to respond because we're going to take advantage of their defaults. So it says, silence can only be equated with fraud when there is a legal or moral duty to speak or when an inquiry left unanswered would be intentionally misleading. We cannot condone this shocking conduct. If this is the case, we hope our message is clear. This sort of deception will not be tolerated. If it is routine, it should be corrected immediately. Now, that's a United States court case says that to a guy named Tweel. That's the U.S. versus Tweel. Now, here's, here's how we can take a Florida case and make it work in California, or how you can take a California case and make it work in, in Minnesota. Full faith and credit shall be given in each state to the public acts, records, and judicial proceedings of every other state. That's the Constitution for the United States of America, Article 4, Section 1. Now, when that was written, they didn't have the overlapping states. Now the states are all federal corporate states. So they're all, any federal case that you can come up with is binding on those federal corporate states. (laughs) Now, here's another case. And uh, this is a California case. Under the doctrine of decisis, all tribunals exercising inferior jurisdiction are required to follow decisions of courts exercising superior jurisdiction. Otherwise, the doctrine of decisis makes no sense. So that's why we like to quote high court decisions because they're binding on these lower courts or now they're quasar courts. Here's another one. Courts exercising inferior jurisdiction must accept the law declared by courts of superior jurisdiction. It is not their function to attempt to override decisions of a higher court. So now we go to some case law. Now, of the four jurisdictions, you remember, if they don't have subject matter jurisdiction, they don't have the other two, which places them in a clear, total, complete absence of all jurisdiction. So these cases are going to be dealing with subject matter jurisdiction. Now, with this man with the horses, he has a land patent. That means the state court had no subject matter jurisdiction, does it? That means he had no in-rem jurisdiction and no in-personum jurisdiction and no venue jurisdiction, simply because the land patent didn't reserve any rights whatsoever to the state of California, to its legislative, executive, or judicial departments or branches. I'm quoting now, subject matter jurisdiction cannot be waived by parties conferred by consent or ignored by the court. In other words, you may have given them jurisdiction, but you can't give them subject matter jurisdiction if it doesn't exist. In other words, you you made a mistake. And they try to trick everybody into their jurisdiction by making a mistake. You know, the the line going into traffic court could be 100 feet long. And out of the 100 feet of people, there's maybe five drivers in there. You know, there's a UPS driver that ran a stop sign. There's that cab driver that was speeding. But this little old grandma that was taking her kids to Sunday school, she's not under that law. Her automobile was not a motor vehicle. She's using her own right of way. Yet they, they want the $300 for going past six inches past the, the white line at the stop sign. And because of her own ignorance, 
she walks in there and she ends up paying it. Or they'll they'll do something evil, like take her driver's license away from her. Well, she doesn't need a driver's license, but she doesn't know that. Okay, subject, here's another one. Subject matter jurisdiction may not be waived and courts may raise the issue sua sponte. Sua sponte means right now. In other words, you can, you can, they can bring it up. And they should. They should say, uh, Mrs. Grandma, um, were you uh, working? Were you on the job? Did, those, uh, did somebody pay you to take those children to Sunday school? Were you, uh, was your car a motor vehicle at the time of the stop? And if she says, no, they're my grandchildren, nobody paid me to do anything, he should say, case dismissed. That officer should not have even stopped you because he should analyze the situation and say, does this look like something in commerce? Well, no, that doesn't look like anything in commerce. Here we go again. Lack of subject matter jurisdiction is a defense that is never waived. You can't waive it by your own mistakes. Subject matter jurisdiction can never be waived and can be raised at any time, even after trial. I have one case that says uh, you can you can challenge jurisdiction in the 15th year of a 30-year sentence. In other words, you sat there for 15 years and you started setting them on, you found, wait a minute, they didn't have any jurisdiction to put me in here. So you can bring it up that late. Here's another one. One of the hallmarks of subject matter jurisdiction is that it can be raised at any time, including on appeal. Even the district court lacks subject matter jurisdiction. Excuse me. If the district court lacks subject matter jurisdiction, I would have to vacate its order. That's what a, 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 a high court decision said on appeal. Um, see, normally you don't bring up anything in the appeal that you didn't bring in the lower court. The, the appellate court will say, well, that wasn't brought up in the lower court. We can't look at it now. But subject matter jurisdiction can be brought up on appeal. That's how powerful that is. Here's another one. Judgment of a court lacking jurisdiction is void. You get that? It's not voidable. It's void. And there's a big difference. Here's another one. Jurisdiction once challenged cannot be assumed and must be decided. And there's case law that says that judge that you're challenging his jurisdiction can't be the one that decides it. And they always do. <laughs> They'll say, yeah, I have jurisdiction. They, they proceed. Well, they're violating high court decisions. The lower court is, the, is trying to overrule a high court decision. It can't do that, <laughs> as we read earlier. Here's another one. Once jurisdiction is challenged, the court cannot proceed when it clearly appears that the court lacks jurisdiction. The court has no authority to reach merits, but rather should dismiss the action. So you see, what I'm, what I'm proposing here is that people should submit a document like this to challenge the jurisdiction. They will ignore it, count on it. But that's a good thing. You don't ever want to say, well, that didn't work. Yes, it did. It worked very well. Here's another one. There is no discretion to ignore lack of jurisdiction. See, courts think, well, I can make a decision here uh, one way or the other. Here's another one. The burden shifts to the court to prove jurisdiction, but not that court. And he's got to, and some other judge has to prove the jurisdiction. There's one that says, and I'm just going from memory here, when, when the jurisdiction is challenged on the record, it must be proven on the record. So we challenge it on the record. The burden of proof being upon the person asserting jurisdiction. So 
once you challenge the jurisdiction, now that prosecutor has to prove jurisdiction. And he can't if you know how to present that. Here's another one. Courts must produce on the record all jurisdictional facts relating to the jurisdiction asserted. So in other words, they've got to go into great detail and say, well, you know, uh, it appears like you were really using your automobile as a motor vehicle because uh, you were, somebody paid you uh, to take him to the airport. Well, first of all, he had no business stopping him to find that out. And that, if, if he ever did that, or she, because that would be the uh, fall under the fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine. Under the fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine, they can't even use really good evidence if it was obtained wrong. Our founding fathers did a wonderful thing for us, and they would like us to believe the founding fathers were just a bunch of rich, white slave owners that were all evil, and we should discount everything they did. But they did a lot of stuff for themselves and their children and their posterity, which it means us. One more here. Jurisdiction must appear as proved on the face of the record. In other words, when you go off an appeal, if they didn't give you a trial by jury where there is no appeal, which they won't ever do, so you will go up on appeal, then it must be provided on the face of the record. Like in the United States District Court, jurisdiction is proven in the first paragraph. The state courts don't do that. One more. A court has the duty to see to it that its processes are not being used improperly or for improper purposes purposes or fraud, etc. And that's what they're used. They're used to raise money. There's a it costs thirty thousand dollars to house a prisoner a year. That's why Charles Manchin is still in jail, by the way. <laughs> they didn't get rid of him years and years ago. They're make they're making a ton of money on that bed that's filled by Charles Manson. $30,000 a year to feed and clothing and keep the air conditioner on in the summertime and the heat on in the winter. And uh, But there's over $100,000 in grants to do that. So there's more than a $70,000 profit for that bed fill. That's the reason. That's the reason that we have the most people in prison because it's, it's a lot of money to make, be made here. In 1980, the United States Supreme Court abolished mere good faith assertions of jurisdiction, power, and authority of municipalities, states, and the USA, and agencies of the hiring there. In other words, a lot of times they'll say, well, we can presume this. It's the, it's the presumption doctrine. Well, we presume we have jurisdiction. No, you can't do that. Life, liberty, and property are the three great subdivisions of all civil rights. Now, that's the case of talking about civil rights. Well, it's also the case with all unalienable rights and us by our creators. By the way, atheists do have civil rights, and civil rights are really not rights, they're privileges, and they, they can be taken away and given. In other words, we could say uh, civil rights, uh, let's say the government take us and, and uh, give us and take us away. Uh, like we miss, that's a misquote of a scripture. Okay, the right to work. Now, this is this is one that can be used for contractors without a license. And I've been an unlicensed or unprivileged, ungovernmentally privileged contractor for 36 years. And I've been a contractor for 56 years. And probably eight of those years, I had four state contractors license classifications. 
and never have anything uh, uh, against me for my licenses. But then I found out in 1981, a long time ago, I was 40 years old in 1981, I didn't need their license. I have a, I have a right to contract. And here, here's, here's a case of, that uh, refers to that. It says the right to work, engage in gainful occupation, and to receive compensation. Now, see, they didn't use the word income, did they? Income is taxable. Compensation is not. Compensation is, is a, you are compensated for a loss. All the original constitutions, they gave the governor and all the people that worked for the government compensation for their loss. Well, yeah, they were compensated for that eight hours a day they spent in their office and they couldn't be with their family or fishing or hiking or bicycle riding or something that they would rather be doing. So they had a loss, didn't they? Out of their life expectancy, there was eight hours that they they had to put someplace else. So they're compensated for that. That's not income. That's not income. So the right to work, engage in gainful occupation, and to receive compensation, therefore, are property rights and property embraces all valuable interests in which a man may possess without outside of himself his life and his liberty and is not confined to mere tangible property, but extends to every species of vested rights. Well, their vested right is talking about civil rights, uh, but it, it also rights, applies to all rights. Right, here's another one. Rights guaranteed in the Constitution. See, these are unalienable rights endowed to us by our Creator, but are guaranteed in the Constitution are invaded when one is not at liberty to contract with others respecting the use of his property or employment of his talents or the manner in which he enjoys uses his, and uses his property. Now, I heard about some guy, I was on a different conference call, and some guy came on, and I know the guy, and uh, he said that his group has had 86 wins and no losses, and they were going to help a guy uh, that was roofing without a contract with license in this town near Las Vegas. Well, first of all, that's hearsay. It's unproven. It's it's a it's an allegation that yet remains to be proven. I doubt seriously that he can prove it. Nobody has 86 wins and no losses. The best guy on the planet has some losses, and he has to go up on appeal. So I don't believe that statement. And I think the guy that he's that they're trying to help is probably going to go to jail for contracting without a license. And uh, I hope they're um, man enough to see me when that guy's sitting in jail because I can get him out. I've been contracting without a license for 36 years for big money, too. See, you can, in California, you can contract up to $800 without a license. And I, I write much bigger contracts without a license. And they know who I am and where I am. Oh, a guy from a contractor's license came out to my office one time and said, Mr. Schaefer, you can't contract without a license. And um, before it was all over, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to say here what the argument was, because I'll save that for uh, for that guy if he needs it. But before it was over, the guy got up and walked out and never came back. And they know who I am and where I am, and they don't bother me because I have the right argument. Okay, rights 
guaranteed in constitutions are invaded when one is not at liberty to contract with others respecting the use of his property or employment of his talents or the manner oh I'll be already read that. The individual here's another one. The individual and I don't like to use that word now, that's a very this is a very old case. It's uh, Hale versus Hinkle, but it's the United States Supreme Court. But the word individual has been bastardized to become a privileged entity. We have the individual income tax return, do we not? Well, that applies to somebody who's privileged. That applies to persons. So anyway, um, this was a very old case before they had changed the meaning of that word. The individual owes nothing to the state, for she receives nothing therefrom. So see, that can still be used. Here's another one. No one is entitled to judicial relief from a supposed or threatened injury until she has exhausted her administrative remedies. And that applies to the government, too. Don't bother me with a court case until you've exhausted your administrative remedy. You see, the, the road to the court goes both ways. There's obligations, duties, and responsibilities that they have as well as what we have. And uh, so we we can uh, take advantage of it when we need to to go after them. Vince Lombardi, the coach of the Green Bay Packers, had a really good statement that worked on the <coughs> excuse me the football field, but it also works good in the battlefield and the courtroom. And that is the best defense is a good offense. You mess with me, and I'm going to mess with you. I think uh, that's what Donald Trump has said. And I'm not saying one way or the other on him, but. <clears throat> that's what he has come come out with, and that's not a bad idea. Then here's another one. These are all United States Supreme Court cases. Jurisdiction, once challenged, cannot be assumed to exist. Don't bring in the doctor doctrine of assumption here. Okay, one more. Uh, jurisdiction can be challenged at any time. We've said that before. Judgment without jurisdiction is void. Another one. All acts of such a form or court in want of jurisdiction being completely void and not just voidable. <clears throat> Something that's voidable needs a court case to go in and prove it was it, it needs to be uh, rewound. But uh it's not voidable, it's just plain void to start with. Jurisdiction is a fundamental and a judgment rendered by a court that does not have jurisdiction to hear is void ab initio. Ab initio means from the beginning. It never was good. That's where a jurisdictional, excuse me, that's where a judicial tribunal has no jurisdiction of the subject matter on which it assumes to act. Its proceedings are absolutely void in the fullest sense of a term. Again, not voidable, they're just plain void. The universal principle as old as law is that the proceeding of a court without jurisdiction are a nullity and a, and a judgment therein without effort, without effect either on persons or property. So um, this could go on for hours, and I'm not going to keep reading, but there are hundreds of jurisdictional challenge cases. And you can go into Shepherd's citators and and find recent cases. These are some of these are pretty old, but they've not been re, re, uh, overturned. And um, there's just piles of jurisdictional challenge case law. So one of the things you want to do, whether you're guilty or innocent, is challenge their jurisdiction. This is a procedure that 
will help you win eventually if you can't win it right away because you're not a person unless you're under under the law. Well, then you, you, you ask them, well, what contract do you have in your system of records that would place me under that law? Uh, I don't know of any, and I've not been served with any. See, you have to be served. For a court to have jurisdiction, everybody has to have due process notice and opportunity to be heard. Without notice and opportunity to be heard, they have no subject matter jurisdiction. So I guess uh, I'm ready for some Q&A, Tab. Okay. Um, if anybody has any questions, hit star 8 on your phone. Star 8. Chirp, chirp. Okay, so I've got a question, Bob. Sure. I saw a couple of court videos on YouTube where people ticked off the judge. Um, like this one guy, I guess this one guy was charged with something, then he went before the judge and found out he was charged with something else, and he says, but wait a minute, that wasn't even what I was charged with yesterday. Uh, and the judge just ruled over him, and so the, guy, the, uh, the defendant just called the judge a cock. And so the judge says, bring him back over here. He says, what did you say? What did you call me? Okay, I'm going to find you in criminal contempt. Is there any reason why I should not find you in contempt? And, and the two videos that I saw, people just kind of stumbled their way through it and didn't really know what to say. And he says, okay, I find you in contempt. It's now 60 days in jail. So well, see, he what, didn't have the right answer. There's a good reason why why you shouldn't find me in contempt if this court doesn't have any subject matter jurisdiction over this issue. You have no administrative law contract, and you're nothing more than an administrative law tribunal. You're not even a court of record pursuant to the Constitution. Now, that's what I would have said. <laughs> can you now, explain what well what was it that he was doing well, when when these judges say can you please you know give me a reason why I should not find you in contempt what is what was the purpose of saying that he's getting your permission for him to slam you he has to give you permission to do anything he gave you an opportunity to to tell him why he can't do what he's going to do and because of our ignorance most people don't know why and so they screw up and they let him do it <laughs> wow the, the uh, Chief Justice Warren Berger made a statement one time that 95% of all people sitting in prison today are there on its, uh, from admissions and confessions. In other words, if you keep your mouth shut in a lot of cases, um, see, when that, when that guy responded, he just responded. If he would have just put his nose in the air and said, I'm not talking to you, uh, he probably would have won. I've seen that happen. I know a lady that did that. She was she was really angry at the right. judge. I told you that. She she gave the yeah. judge the silent treatment. Okay, we've got, uh, I think, Genevieve in Oregon here that's got a question. Go ahead. How'd you guess? <laughs> it, it, you had the name Oregon. <laughs> Well, we're not the only ones who live in Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> well, hello, Bob. 
Hi. Hi. What, I have a couple of questions for you in case you didn't get oh, that. Oh, come on, Genevieve. <laughs> you have more than a couple of questions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'm <laughs> under-exaggerating or something? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, talking about challenging jurisdiction before going to court, I think you said to enter uh, what an affidavit in order to do so, is that correct? That would be a really good way to do it because the affidavit of uncontested material facts, oh, the, the, the challenge jurisdiction has to be responded to. Okay. Now, 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 I don't go to court anymore. I just don't because I know the law better than they do. And if they mess with me, I'll sue them and I'll get $1,000 per minute of any false arrest or false imprisonment. <laughs> And I would tell the, the the officer, you know, I really want you to arrest me because I want to come after you and your family and your boss and and the city and the county for one thousand dollars a minute for my for this false arrest because you don't have any subject matter jurisdiction over me. Mm-hmm. I'm not in commerce right now. I'm not for hire. And you have no business talking to me. Now, if some somehow you get dragged into court. Then here's how you how you how you deal with that because ah. see, they're gonna they're gonna try to to make you start talking to them, and sometimes they trick people into that by sounding sounding like they're trying to help them. They'll say, "Look, I can't help you if you don't talk to me." The minute you open your mouth, you you're not only not gonna get help, but you're gonna get slammed because you didn't know any better. Now here's 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 what you if you're gonna say anything you want to say I'm appearing here today specially and not generally for the sole purpose of challenging the jur- subject matter jurisdiction of this court. I've not been handed any jurisdictional granting papers and I don't believe the court has been. So that means the court's in the clear, total, and complete absence of all jurisdiction and liable for any injuries that I sustain. Further, I say if not. You sit down and shut up. Do you also uh, challenge jurisdiction in your document, your like affidavit before you yeah. go to trial? Oh yeah, but see, they won't take me to trial. The last time I was in court, um, <laughs> the judge the judge dismissed the case before trial because. <laughs> Because they didn't want to give me a trial by jury. I kept demanding a trial by jury. I don't want no jury trial. I demand a trial by jury. I didn't request it. You see, when you use the word request, petition, application, or motion, you're giving them jurisdiction. Except you can't give them jurisdiction if they don't have any subject matter jurisdiction. But they perceive it as you gave them jurisdiction, whether you made a motion, petition, application, or request. No, it's a finger in the chest. I'm giving you notice, boy. A notice doesn't give them jurisdiction. And I demand this. I don't request anything. It's called a common law notice and demand. See, the common law was really great, but we can't live in the common law completely today. There's a lot of people that think that we should all be able to do that. But unless you're going to pay all your bills in silver and gold coin, you're using their script. And they won't, And the government won't take silver dollars anymore. And years ago, they wouldn't take anything except silver dollars. So, okay. So, 
in challenging the jurisdiction in your document before going to trial, is the document an affidavit or is yes. it something else? I love the affidavit. An affidavit is you can be it can be used like discovery, but it's not considered discovery. And uh, it can be done before. You see, in the in the U.S. District Court, you have to wait for some uh, Rule 76 hearing, I believe it is. And uh, on that hearing is where they're going to try to get rid of your case. You know, they make a motion to dismiss on failure to state a cause of action, which uh, relief can be granted. And the judge is looking for a way to get rid of you. And so he might grant it. And if he says, yeah, this case is dismissed, he'll do it either with prejudice or without prejudice. Without prejudice means you can amend it. With prejudice means it's over, except you can go up on appeal then and go to a higher court. Now, you said that a, a notice to appear and a promise to appear don't give the judge jurisdiction. Exactly. So, wh- so what does give the judge jurisdiction? Three different documents, a formal verified complaint ah. and, and, and information created. And the formal verified com- complaint could be your neighbor or a public prosecutor. An indictment is by a grand jury. And information is by the attorney general. And so those three give them jurisdiction, but that still doesn't give them jurisdiction until a proof of service is in the record. In other words, on this date, I handed uh, Mr. Schaefer this document and said, you're served. Well, if they didn't know it was me or if they didn't serve me, and they tried five times or ten times, and then they give up on the personal service, then they can do it what they call service uh, a substitution of service, where they can give my uh, secretary or the one in charge of the office a uh, service and say, this is for Mr. Schaefer, it's a court case, you have to hand it to him because he has so many days to respond to it, have a nice day and leave. Or he can do that with a competent member of the household. If they find my house and they find my maid or my butler or my children, my adult children or my grandparents or my parents, or somebody that's in, or could be a tenant that's rented a room, if you're a competent member of the household, then you are served. Now, if you can't do that, then he's got to go to court and get leave of court to serve you by publication. And every time he does that, he's got to give you notice that your last notice, known address, that he did that, so you can start looking in the paper to see if he did it or not. A lot of times they don't go that far. It's just not worth it. So, you know, you can you can win your case by not being served sometimes, and there's no obligation, duty, and responsibility for you to go help them serve you. You want to make it hard on them. Don't make it easy. And so, um, but once you get served one of those three ways, you have been served, and if you default, you're going to get a judgment against you. But if it's a money judgment, we can get rid of that with an offer to pay. I've done that many times because their problem of the money of account of the United States pursuant to the Coins Act of April 2, 1792 is to find only a dollar of silver that we call a silver dollar. That's a weight of silver is what it is. Do you make that offer to pay before even going to court? You can, but... Um, you, I have offers to pay for uh, school loans and car loans and IRS and, and state taxes, and I've got a bunch of offers to pay. 
But if but you see, I tell I usually tell people bring me a judgment because the Coney Jack says the money of account of the United States and all court proceedings in California we have California Government Code sixty eight fifty, which is almost reads word for word what the Coney Jack does. It's, it says the money of account of the state of California and all court proceedings. I love those words. Shall be had and held in the form of a dollar, cent, and mill. The federal law says a dollar, dime, cent, and mill. And dime is spelled D-I-S-M-E. It's spelled different. Anyway, uh, I was in one court, and the judge said, well, I'm going to have to find you guilty, but I'm only going to charge you uh, $25. I've told her before. And then I said, well, I don't know what you can, what I, I can pay this, you know, considering the California... Government Code 6815, and I quoted it, and then I quoted the Great Act of April 2, 1792. And he later said, uh, well, I'm not going to try. <laughs> I'm not going to make you pay that right now. You can pay that if you lose on appeal. I know you want to appeal this. Cause I've got a reputation for that. <laughs> and uh, if it ever comes back where you really owe the money, um, I'm going to be over in family law court. Your dollar cent and mill argument could be somebody else's problem. <laughs> it's a it's a problem. It's their problem. It's not my problem. <laughs> and yet they they get tons of money from the ignorant people because the people don't know this 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 uh, fact. Yeah. They can't charge you anything because it's not available at the corner bank. So if you go uh, before a judge and and the trial goes forward, and at the end you're found guilty, and and the judge wants you to pay is 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 that the moment that you that you bring up what do you require yes that okay. is okay that's a, you've got it you've got it i'm so happy you brought up the re, the require word so <laughs> sir hey i've so, been sir, listening what are, bob what are, what's that i've been listening <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you're great so you say, sir, uh, I never say your honor anymore. I, I, I think they're despicable. There's no honor there. Mm-hmm. And I think we should have courts that we can honor, but they need to they need to earn it or they need to hold it. Uh, I'll give a brand new charge of your honor because he's not been, he's not yet uh, proved that he was evil. But uh, I would say, sir, I need to know before I can pay that, I need to know what this uh, court is required of me to pay that. Excellent. Considering, considering the coining tax of April 2, 1792 is the only American law that ever defined a dollar. And in California, California Government Code 6850 says the money of account of the state of California in all purpose proceedings. And I'll look at the ceiling and raise my hands and I'll look around and I'll say, I think that's all we have here is a court proceeding. I think this law is binding on this court. And that's the judge, that's the judge that said... Uh, you know, I know you have some appealable issues. And by the way, I reversed him on appeal not once but twice. And he was the presiding judge over 72 judges. Whoa. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> excuse me, last week you told the story about uh, your telling the judge that you wouldn't be available for six weeks. And the judge eventually said, okay, the court's going to honor that. Is that okay with you? And you said, yes, under protest. Yes, how do you like that? 
Now, See, under, protest, under protest protected my jurisdictional challenge. If I would have said yes without saying under protest, I would have given him jurisdiction. Okay. He was trying to trick me to, into jurisdiction. And when I said that, it, it, that almost, under protest, almost sounds counter to what I was just asking for, doesn't it? Y- yeah. And he said, <laughs> he smiled, and he said, I can appreciate that answer. <laughs> Love it. He knew exactly what I was doing. And, then, and I, then in continuing with your story that you gave last week, you said to do everything under protest. If you pay a bill, you pay it under protest. So that how, do preserves, you pay, how do you pay ahead. a bill under protest? Well, it could be with Federal Reserve notes or checkbook money or credit card money, but you want to do it and get it on the record that it was paid under protest. That preserves your right to go back after it with a lawsuit. Oh, okay. Okay. So you have, there's another case that says failure to object timely is fatal. That doesn't mean you're going to die, but it's fatal <laughs> to your argument. It's just fatal to your argument. So you object to everything. And you can just keep saying, I want the record to show I object. If the judge says, well, what? what? what's your reason for objecting? You don't have to give him a reason. You just say, I just want the record to show I object. I'll have to think about my good, <laughs> my, my good reason. I love I'll it. Think of one la- I'll think of one later. I'm under a lot of stress right now, but I want the record to show I objected timely. <laughs> And uh, I got another question. Sure. Guys. You have a bunch of good questions. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. I just, oh, you got <laughs> so much, you know, that I want to know. Regarding asking the appeals court for help and figuring out what you did wrong in the lower court, is there a form and when do you ask? Well, first of all, you don't have to do it for anything you did wrong. You do it for what they did wrong. Oh. See, so you're you're asking the the higher appellate court to reverse what they did wrong. So now, if if you find out that you did something wrong, then it's okay. You can make a motion to reconsider for newly discovered evidence. Not just a motion to reconsider. You've got to have for newly discovered evidence. And when you say for newly discovered evidence, they have to they have to consider that. Oh, okay. So I figured out that, oh, I did this wrong, and now I want to do it right. Yes, you can do that. Oh, okay. And is there a form that you fill out asking them for help, or is again, back to affidavits? Well, it's called an appellant's opening brief. The first thing you do is called a notice of appeal, and it's very brief. It can be one page. It just says, I'm giving notice of my appeal. It's like a finger in the chest, notice of the amendment. See, it's a notice. You're not giving any jurisdiction. A notice of appeal. I'm giving notice that I'm appealing Judge Smedley's ruling on this case number so-and-so that was rendered on this date. And it's that simple. Now then, the, the appellate court will give you a, a briefing schedule. And you better keep the briefing schedule, but you can you can get past that if there's you know extenuating circumstances like a death in the family, and I've seen a number of good reasons. But you, the notice of appeal has to be done timely, or it's too late. Now there is a way around that. Remember, I told you there's a way over, under, around, and through all roadblocks, and that's a roadblock that they love to use. Well, you didn't file your notice of appeal timely, so it's over. 
and they issue the remediator, which is the death certificate of the case. But there's a way around that that most attorneys don't even know. I mean, some probably some probably do. And that's where you go back into that lower court and you create another issue. <laughs> I'm making a motion to reconsider for newly discovered evidence. And now they have to hear that. Now you better appeal it timely. You've got a second chance. Oh. Or if you don't have an, uh, if they've issued the remediator, then you make a motion to recall the remediator for newly discovered evidence. And there's, you can always find newly discovered evidence. Oh, but we, but you have said not to make motions, isn't that correct? Exactly. Notices and demands. Right. Now, okay. now then, after you after you do the notice of appeal, and they then they'll give you a schedule for your what they call the appellant's opening brief, and that's where you show the appellant for all the evils that this guy did at the lower court level. <laughs> like one I like to use is, is this guy paid to be a judge. He's not even a judge. He's not qualified to be a judge because he didn't swear or affirm the constitutionally mandated oath of office found in Article 20, Section 3 of the California Constitution. So, therefore, this is Mr. Schmedley and not Judge Schmedley, and he issued this this ruling, and uh, he's he's uh, actually impersonating an officer, which is a crime. And I'm asking this appellate court to re- reverse this ruling because it's not voidable, it's void. Ah. Uh, okay, well, I'll... I got a couple more questions, Tad. Sure. Is that okay well, with you? Um, nobody else is on the board right now with their hand raised, so um, I'll give a call out if anybody has any questions. Hit star eight real quick. Otherwise, we'll let Genevieve continue. I'm glad we have somebody that's asking questions, and they're all very good questions. Go ahead. Well, actually, actually, we do have somebody else that raised their hand, so I'd like to go ahead and, and go to this new person. Maybe Genevieve, you can wait till next week. Can I ask one more? And this is this is personal, and this is about a license plate. It, it should be quick. Sure. All right. Um, my license plates have already um, expired and I didn't send them back to the state, what might you do in a case like that where you want to go ahead and, and travel without license plates? Well, you know, I'll tell you what I, not what I would do, I'll tell you what I do. <clears throat> my, my automobile is licensed to be, be a motor vehicle if the need should ever arise. In other words, it is commerce ready. I am too busy to go fight this little tiny 10 cent argument. But I don't, I, there are people that have developed that, by the way. Okay. And I have a bunch of case law on that that I'm considering doing in the near future. Uh, I, uh, I have a car that I'm willing to sacrifice if I have to just to, to do this. And that might that might happen. But uh, So I, I don't teach people to, to send their place back um, I did one time. I sent a, uh, um, I sent the plate back, and I said I want um, I want this to, this vehicle to be taken off the wreck because I'm moving it to a different jurisdiction. And I didn't say what that jurisdiction was, but just between you and me, I was re- removing it from the federal corporate state of California to the original underlying 
state of California. Right. Okay, thank you so much. I appreciate your help a lot, Bob. You're welcome, Tyler. Thank you for calling in. You're welcome. Thanks. Bye, Tad. Thanks, Genevieve. I think this might be Daniel in California. California, when your phone mutes and unmutes, it's your turn. Go ahead. Um, Bob, I have a question. Hi, Tad. Um, the, the question is this. What I have, I have a friend of mine who actually had this happen recently. What do you do when you're in the court and the judges, which happens on a regular basis, refuse it, I mean, this bypasses your jurisdictional argument and says, or contention that you're there on special appearance, he did all of that, and the judge bypasses all that, refuses to hear it, and says, and, and claims that they have jurisdiction anyway. Well, you just say, I'm giving you my verbal notice of appeal, and I'm giving my written notice of appeal timely. Okay. In fact, you might want to throw the word interlocutory in there. You see, okay. the um, an interlocutory appeal is kind of like a divorce. So the judge will make an interlocutory decision in a divorce situation because he's got uh, child support and he, he's going to be on top of this for the next um, 10, 12 years until the kids grow older. Uh, that's what what interlocutory means. You're preserving it. You're not. It's not over. And so. <clears throat> most court clerks don't know what an interlocutory appeal is. So in my interlocutory appeal, I quote uh, Black's Law Dictionary that basically says there's some things that cannot wait for the uh, one final judgment rule to kick in. See, there's so many appeal, people in the past that appealed every little nitpicking thing. They didn't like this, they didn't like that. I'm giving anybody notice of appeal. Well, that would solve the case until it went up on appeal and came back down. Then it went back to court. And then the next year, well, I don't like that either. I'm giving my notice of appeal. And it just went on and on and on and on. And so they, they stopped that with what they call the one final judgment rule. You cannot appeal anything until the one final judgment is rendered. Well, wait a minute. There's some jurisdictional things that we need to talk about right now. In the interest of judicial economy, we might not need to go to trial. So that's why you can do an interlocutory appeal. I mean, I've done a lot of interlocutory appeals, and I use that. Well, and the, the clerk will say, well, what's this all about? And I'm, well, on page two here, it gives a, a, a Black's Law Dictionary definition of an interlocutory appeal, which says it's okay. Mm-hmm. Well, this one had to do with, had, had to do with uh, driving with no license. Yeah, well, well you... Know. you Probably. You see, there you, you've got to prove that you weren't driving. You know, right. this office, this officer made a mistake. He considered me a driver of a motor vehicle, and I'm not. I, I never, I haven't been a driver of a motor vehicle for about 36 years. Well, the, what happened was the in, the the the, uh, the guy, the, my friend, put in the paperwork to the court in advance. He had the judge admitted to having looked at it, didn't agree with any of that. Said, "I have jurisdiction anyway." <laughs> So I told well, see, you to appeal it. That's an interlocutory appeal because you made a subject matter jurisdictional challenge and he ruled on it himself. Now that's called a conflict of interest. Okay. That's self-serving. You can't do that. You got my notice of interlocutory appeal. I'm going to have a higher court tell or instruct you what the law says. Excellent. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> All right, Bob. 
Uh, I think. Oh, okay. Somebody else has a question. In Orange County, go ahead. Hello, Tad. Um, hello, Bob. Hi. Hi. Okay, I've got a question, um, and this was regarding a child support hearing. I'll let you know up front that this is. Uh, I, I need you to speak slower and and uh, very distinctly. My hearing is very bad. Okay. Um, in a child support hearing, the federal regulation manual says no judge is allowed to sit in on a child support hearing. In addition, on the courtroom door is a big sign that says, absent any objections from either party, this proceeding will be heard by Commissioner Smith. So if a judge is not allowed in on the hearing, and and if you object to a commissioner, how can they possibly proceed because you've just taken out both? Well, first of all, you'd have to approve or stipulate to a commissioner. A commissioner is nobody but a wannabe judge. Yeah. And, and and they're supposed to hand you a stipulation paper that says you stipulate to allow this commissioner to make judicial determinations in this one case. But if you haven't done that, right there is, you know, you got my notice of interlocutory appeal. I never stipulated to a commissioner. Now, a lot of people can stipulate not knowing it. So that's why you have to object. You know, I object to a commissioner hearing this matter. I I demand a real judge. That's right. Many people do not know that you have to stipulate to a commissioner or a magistrate. Years ago, they were forced to hand you a stipulation paper. Now they just try to trick you. They're wearing a a robe and they're in a courtroom and they have a bailiff and a sheriff and uh, sure looks like this is real. And so you just start talking to them, and they take that as you gave them jurisdiction. And they don't even bring up the stipulation. But you can bring up, you, you can you can subpoena or, or, or buy the, uh, the court record and point out that um, you never stipulated anywhere, either in in writing or, and they never offered it to you. They, they're supposed to do that. I objected from the first moment I went in and asked her if she was a judge. She said, yes, I'm a judge, and I will be handling these proceedings. I showed her the federal regulation manual that said no judge can fit in on a child support hearing, and then she changed her mind, and she said, that is correct. That's why I'm not really a judge. I'm a commissioner. Okay, now, let me, let, me interrupt you. let me interrupt you. Would you send that authority to TAD, please? I've not heard that after 36 years, but I've not done a lot of family law. But that's, a, that's good to know. And if you yes. can send, send us that authority that a judge shouldn't be involved in that, that's something I want to add to my uh, arsenal. It is Yes, it is right in the federal regulation manual that they all have to go by. And yes. if, if you can't have either, how can a case even be heard? But I objected. Uh, I asked her, actually, <laughs> he politely, that you need to recuse yourself because a judge can't be here. She said, you're correct. That's why I'm really commissioner. Then I said, but there's a sign on your door that says absent objections from the parties, you can go forward. Well, I don't consent. I do object, and I reserve all my rights. And she said, I am going to proceed anyway and continue to call people to speak. I objected again and again regarding jurisdiction. 
And I also told her that this is nothing but an administrative, non-judicial proceeding and that they were a private corporation and that they were trying to coerce me into a contract and I do not consent. She still went went forward. Uh, And then I said, you are also breaking judicial canons three because you have a personal financial interest in this case because you get 66% federal kickbacks for every case you prosecute into this child support. That's when she called six bailiffs in to surround me on the floor and forced the proceeding to continue. Well, it sounds like you set her up really good. Now you need an appellate court to, to uh, intervene. Now, I don't see the appeals court. court. They, dismissed my, they dismissed my appeal on a technicality. Uh, I think I really upset them all. Um, the technicality they came up with was you did not take the transcript. However, they had just approved a fee waiver. Okay, and now let me said, ask you this question. Is this yeah. for child support from uh, 20 years ago they're trying to get caught up on that they, uh, or is it for current child support? Uh, this is current child support. However, I am in a special case because I have a daughter that was kidnapped by her father. Um, and I went through three years in court with a $450 an hour attorney and never got justice. Okay. Um, (laughs) Let me make some observations here. Number one, um, I think people ought to support their kids, but number two, they shouldn't shouldn't have to support the boyfriend or girlfriend of the of the uh, former spouse either, and that's where a lot of child support money goes. And so, what I, you can do I, is I set up set up a foundation that they have to account for every penny they spend on on your daughter, and and you can get a court order for that. So, and you and the reason is that you, it's your belief that. Uh, but they're not using this to support your daughter. They're using it for the for a good life and uh, for for vacations and for <clears throat> not supporting your daughter. And you need to know that every item goes to support your daughter. Now, if it's for old, I'm going to say this for just the general population that's listening in. For something, sometimes you know they'll come after somebody. They'll say, "Well, you didn't make your child support payments, and the state did." Uh, even though your kid uh, turned of age uh, five years ago, you're going to have to reimburse the state. In that case, we can do an offer to pay to get rid of that, completely get rid of it. But okay. if it's for if it's for current okay. child support, I don't I don't intervene. I think people ought to support I their understand. kids, but they can do it. They can do I it. I made an offer to pay the privately with the uh, father but he refused uh-huh. because he said it was about destroying me, and that was it. Uh-huh. So, uh-huh. Um, okay. Anyway, so I'm I'm um, heading for the offer to pay right now. I'm sorry? Um, I, I'm going to attempt the offer to pay. Yeah, okay. Now, yes. But uh, the appeal, I, I just got tired. They kicked it out because of this technicality saying I did not pay for the transcript when they approved my fee waiver. I had a certified transcript in my hand. I said, I'll run it down to you now. 
and the clerk freaked out on the phone and said, no, it's over, it's over, it's over, you cannot come, and they issued a remitter yeah. on that. See, see um, um, family law is still a court. Or they try to make you believe it's a court. It's an administrative law court or actually an administrative law tribunal or an ALT. And they're still bound because they're trying to look like a court. They're still bound by the Queens Act of April 2, 1792, and in California, California Government Code, Section 6850. And that's their problem. And that's the presiding judge of the county said that's a problem to me. He was going to be in another court, and that dollar cent mill argument is going to be somebody else's problem. Yeah. That's not that's not our problem. We can't pay for anything. We can only retire debt and we can discharge debt, but we cannot pay. You can only pay with silver or gold coin. That's case law on that. <clears throat> and then it's no longer available. I tell people, you know, since the Coins Act of 1965, which specifically says this does not change the definition of a dollar, but it brought in clad coins and it took the redeemability away from the silver certificate. In other words, that really, it really messed with the Americans, uh, and they got away with it. But since 1965, and, and the silver certificates were no longer redeemable because they were at par with silver dollars. So I tell people, you haven't bought a tank of gas or a sack of groceries or made a house payment or a rent payment or paid any taxes since 1965. You've already discharged debt. You didn't need to. You could have made an offer to pay. Wow. Because because you discharged it with with Federal Reserve notes and and checkbook money and credit card money, which is not... The dollar, dime, cent, and mill of the Queen's Act of April 2, 1792. <clears throat> Are you saying we can pay our utility bills this way with an offer to pay? If they take it to court, then it becomes a court proceeding. I see. Okay. And you see, they okay. have they have the upper hand. They'll just shut you off. Yes. Yes, I've experienced that. All right. Well, why don't you get? Um, Thank you. Uh, why don't you send me that information and yes, see if sir, we can uh, work with you privately or something. I know. <laughs> All right. Well, Bob, I think that's it. Uh, I don't have any more questions on the board, so I want to thank you very much again for joining us and sharing sure. your your wisdom and your knowledge. Thank you. And so what? What will our call be about next week? I've got to think about it. Okay. <laughs> I'll have a I'll have a good one though. No, I've got a, a bunch of them, but I I've been too busy this week to think about next week yet. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, everybody, thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you again next week. Good night. Bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.